HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org donate. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at things that have changed and things that are still in flux. From mothers balancing new lifestyles to the social stigma surrounding pumpkin spice. You got rid of the star rating system and talked about, like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food. They recognized that safety was our motivation and, and they were very you know, receptive to the changes, understanding what we were trying to accomplish. A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered. Tune in to Meet and 3 HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief. With your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and Bobby Comforto, my mom, who is not pictured in this intro, but very much with us in spirit. Um, as COVID continues to keep us separated, I continue to do these intros alone. But fear not, Bobby will be joining us in just a moment for our episode, which is incredible this week. Um, it, all the episodes are incredible and touching this week. Uh, we welcome someone who we love very much, Serena Liguri. Serena is the executive director of an incredible nonprofit called New Hour for Women and Children. Um, New Hour was founded on Long Island to provide meaningful support to current and formerly incarcerated women, their children, and families. Uh, they build community to promote successful reentry and lasting reintegration and to reform unjust criminal justice system policies. Uh, they empower directly impact, impacted people to use their experiences to affect change in the carceral system. Uh, that last part was taken directly from their website, but I just wanted to give you a really clear picture of exactly what No Hour does because it is really just such an incredible organization and so necessary. Um, so we had such a beautiful and rich talk with Serena about her own experience in the carceral system, the kind of things that she and her friends would cook in prison, um, her acclimation back into life after coming out of the carceral system, and then um, how she ended up in her current job today, helping other folks and their families. Um, this is an important talk and an important conversation to be having and something perhaps we don't think about um, as we talk about in the episode. Unfortunately, so often I think people think of 
folks who end up in the carceral system as quote unquote bad or having done something terrible or and, and it is so far from the truth. And so I hope that after listening to this episode, everyone, if they feel compelled, um, can take a moment to just do some research about about the carceral system, about the prison industrial complex, um, because there needs to be, I mean, at the very least, extreme reform. Um, because, you know, this type of system is not what keeps society safe. In fact, quite the opposite, in my opinion. Um, so we are honored and just blown away by um, how candid and brave and wonderful Serena is and about by the work that she does. It's not only inspiring, it's just, there's almost no words. In fact, I'm really obviously struggling to find them right now. Um, so thank you, Serena. Thank you for joining us and thank you for the work you do. And please, everybody, if you have a chance, um, check out the like beyond incredible work that New Hour is doing. Um, we will put notes in our show notes about links in our show notes about how to find out how to get to New Hour's website and their Instagram, etc. Um, so yeah, please enjoy our conversation with Serena. And uh, we have a holiday coming up this week, and you know I know that can be tough uh, for a lot of people and during a quote unquote normal time. Although I don't know what normal really is. <laughs> um, but Bobby and I are both sending our um, warmest vibes and hugs and support to everyone out there who may be struggling this year um, during the holidays. And next week, you can expect a holiday-related episode from us. So we'll just be Bobby and I kind of talking about some themes, dealing with that stuff. So love you guys all very much. Um, Thank you. And without further ado, um, please enjoy our talk with Serena. Thanks. Bye. So we are so lucky and grateful and happy today to be sitting with our friend Serena Ligori, the executive director of the nonprofit New Hour for Women and Children uh, in Long Island. Serena, hello. Hi there. Thanks for having me, Zara. Of course. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Bobby. (laughs) So Serena, can you tell us, I, I guess like let's just start off because New Hour is such an incredible organization. Um, I had the privilege of coming to hang out with you guys and, and the women at the organization once, and it was so such a beautiful experience. And thank you again for having me. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about what New Hour is all about? Yeah, absolutely. And we loved having you. Our kids and moms and grandmothers still talk about the pudding that you made that was delicious with <laughs> avocados, and nobody knew it had avocados. <laughs> I know, very sneaky. Yes. Um, So yeah, our organization is six years old. It's um, really focused on empowering and supporting justice-impacted women. And we say that really specifically thinking about the stigma that women who've been incarcerated or arrested or come home from prison and jail, the stigma that they face and the overwhelming obstacles they and their children face. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Bobby. You know, I've had the pleasure of knowing you for so many years, and um, 
I wonder if you could tell our audience how you came to do this work. And I know that it came through something very difficult and traumatic in your life. Yes. So um, I came to this work, uh, now it's a little over 20 years from the time that I had a really serious trauma in my life and uh, found myself as a teenager incarcerated. And, um, you know, it's a long journey to finding your sense of self, your self-esteem, um, even your, your voice around uh, the terrible stigma and shame that all women and men feel when they become incarcerated. And especially, um, I think, as a Long Islander, there's such a sort of divide about things that we don't talk about. And, and I'm sure this is in lots of places, but I think it's magnified in suburban areas where, um, you know, what happens behind closed doors, people, you know, kind of push under the rug and um, it's a less inclusive environment. Um, and so when um, I was doing policy work in New York City after coming home from prison, uh, I was so grateful to have this space where my incarceration, my conviction, it didn't, it, it didn't matter in terms of um, uh, being a negative. And to be able to do it on Long Island now, all these years later, is tremendously gratifying. It's incredible. Mm. So how old were you? You were 18, 19 years old, and you found yourself in what kind of prison situation were you in? So yeah, I was incarcerated in uh, Bedford Hills, which is a, a prison that a lot of women go to. Um, and one of the things that uh, you know I survived was in the county jail at that time. Um, I was in a, a space that they, uh, you know, people think when you go to prison or jail, it's like what you see on TV, which is not the case. Um, and so the space that I was in was what's considered you're in your cell 23 hours out of a day. And there's lots of reasons for this, right? You can be put into what they call protective custody, which is also 23 hours in a cell. Um, and you can get in trouble, and that can be the reason you're put in a cell for 23 hours. And, um, you know, many people in prison live in these spaces for days and months and years and decades. So, um, you know, I luckily only was there for six months in that space, but um, I remember coming home after being in that space because uh, I came home on bail and I went to a food store thinking, oh, I can't wait to go to a food store. And the lights and the bright colors, I had had such deprivation of those sort of stimuli that going to the food store threw me into a, a, a terrible panic attack um, because of all of the stimulus that I had just not had for six months. So you're saying for six months initially, you were, before you got out on bail, you is something like solitary confinement. Is that what you're saying? So 23 hours of a day right. by yourself. Right. Wow. Wow. It's, yeah. So what did you do? I yeah. mean, what did you do during tw for 23 hours in a cell by yourself? What was that whole, ex from beginning, you know, I mean, of the day? I think that, um, you know, you adjust and figure out ways to handle trauma and your survival skills, you know, kind of kick in, in terms of, 
Um, you know, we were given, uh, I had, I remember oranges. You get an orange with breakfast. I don't know if they still do that. Uh, but I would take the orange peels and keep them to make the space smell good. And that was, you know, because it, 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 it smelled horrible in the, in the facility in general. And there was no fresh air and I was not next to a window. Um, so, you know, you do a lot of writing and reading and um, a, just uh, mostly writing and reading. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, a lot of times when people go through a, a trauma and a, a, are experiencing a lot of grief and loss, we have the capacity to try to, you know, put ourselves in a healing situation and take warm baths or eat foods that we like or, you know, go away. I mean, of course, not everybody has that luxury, but like, you know, oftentimes folks are able to take little bits of time for themselves to try to heal and for you to go from from a trauma right into an isolated environment like that, I mean, what an amazing amount of emotional fortitude under such uh, incredibly uncomfortable and alienating and isolating circumstances. I mean, as a young woman and, and young people in general, I mean, we are constantly growing, but I know I can speak for myself in my early late teens and early 20s, I didn't have the emotional bandwidth, I don't think, to withstand something so extreme. You know, how did you, and to see you and to know you today and to see what you've done with your life and done for other people as a result of this, like, where do you feel like, if you can pinpoint it, that emotional fortitude came from? Yeah, I I mean, I wish I, I, wish I knew. I, I will say that um, anyone I've ever talked to who's been through traumatizing events says kind of the same thing I do, which is you had no choice. So really the choice was, and people did. I mean, while I was there, I remember a woman did commit suicide. Um, I do remember, you know, multiple major issues happening and brutality that happened around me. Um, the other challenge of being in the space I was in is that a lot of the severely mentally ill women were there. So, um, they weren't being given proper treatment and, um, they were really acting out. So it was a, it was a, and typically this is true in prisons as well. You know, solitary is kept for, unfortunately, and ironically, the, the folks who should be getting more help, not less help. And um, so it can create a traumatic environment just because of what you're hearing and listening to through the bars and the walls. Um, you know, and I think about, um, you know, when I went up to state prison, it was such a different experience because you had freedom to walk on the grounds, certainly with, you know, a group of women and there were officers with, you know, guns and all of that. But um, I was thinking back to that time and remembering how the connection to food was sort of created because um, I became friends with a group of women who love to cook, as do I. I grew up cooking with my grandmother, um, traditional Puerto Rican, you know, meals. And um, I remember we would take the top to like a can of tomatoes and you would use that to to slice things that you because we didn't couldn't have a knife so we take the top of a can which is actually probably more dangerous than a knife <laughs> right yeah right. <laughs> um, very sharp. but we would use the can and slice up 
onions really fine and they would soak them in the ice water so that we would have for the ceviche. So we would, so there was lots of these amazing oh meals gosh. that we used to make together. <laughs> you had ceviche. What kind of ceviche were you making? <laughs> so a lot of women would have, um, you know, some of us were fortunate enough to have family send us things. So you can receive a package of food um, and you can keep the food cold in a small cooler with some ice. And so there were a lot of great meals. We had, you know, anything that, that we could get sent and approved, we would, we would do that. I mean, you certainly had to have um, family that would send it to you or friends that had money and would, and it is expensive to supply food. Even um, what's called the commissary list there is, uh, you know, it's expensive and you're, you're making, I think I made nine cents an hour um, in your job. Um, I actually worked in the kitchen when everyone has to work in what they call the mess hall when you first get there. So I worked in the kitchen for, you know, two or three weeks. I was washing pots and pans and I got a huge burn on my arm from scalding water. And that's how I got out of the mess hall. <laughs> so. Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. What was it? What would, I want to go back just a little bit. I'm curious. Um, what was, do you have any standout meals that people would send that you remember distinctly like oh my gosh the you know ceviche obviously sounds incredible yes. is there anything else that was that kind of stood yeah. out for you yeah so um we had uh you know a hot pot that we would cook on and so we could make anything and wow. if you talk to other prisoners um you know I had my 21st birthday in prison and my friends made a birthday cake on the hot pot um, oh and it came out really great. <laughs> oh, um, one of the things I used to get was um, cans of tomato sauce, and I would make my own Spanish rice. Like, I always made it at home. You know, my arroz con gandules, rice with pigeon peas. I still make it to this day with my son. He knows how to do it, um, and it's my grandmother's recipe. So there were... Times where, you know, on the weekends or times when we were out of our cells in, in, in prison where, you know, food was about community even there, um, where we would make, you know, platanos, some plantains, and we would make our rice. And, um, you know, my friend who was, uh, you know, she was from Korea, uh, uh, the Trinidad, she would make Trinidadian food. And it, we would all just kind of make the meals that we had made all along. Um, but the key was you had to get the food to you to do yeah. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. So amazing. That's amazing. I'm I hear a cookbook and <laughs> I mean, that would be incredible. Really? Like I'm curious. I, I have a question to go back even further. So I, uh, imagine that when you enter the prison system and have are stripped of basically all your rights, which is a whole another story and talking about the injustice in that and making nine cents an hour. When you said that, I was just like, ugh. Um, that's terrible. Um, uh, what do you, do you have anything that stands out for you significant, significantly as, um, something you really missed as, as like, wow, I can't believe now I'm living without this thing, whether it be a comfort or a food or, or people in your life. Like, was there anything that was really stood out for you there? Yeah, that's such a great question because, Everything had changed so drastically that you didn't even have time to think about all of the things you miss. It was just, there was such an overflow of just your normalcy is gone. You know, there is nothing about life that is normal. And whether it be 
being woken up in the middle of the night for what they call shakedowns. And, you know, people used to keep peanut butter and jelly in their cells because you'd get hungry. And the food um, that was served in the jails was really awful. Um, there were these bologna sandwiches that were not any bologna I've ever seen before and white bread. And usually they, some of them were moldy. Some of them were, um, you know, just not taste, didn't taste well. So what we would do is keep small um, containers of peanut butter and jelly, which you could, um, I guess we were given at some, I don't even remember how we got it, but you're not legally supposed to keep food in your cells in jail. So when they would come in with a bunch of officers, they would take all of that food and like throw it up against the walls. Um, And I remember like, you know, you see the peanut butter jelly kind of dripping down the walls in front of you. And it was, it was unnecessary certainly to do that. Um, But it just reminds me of the fact that there are so many ways that, you know, the prison system, perpetuates violence against women and men. Um, And I think that, you know, thinking about the women who come into our office now at at New Hour, they're so grateful for food, toiletries, soap, um, clothing, and they'll say, well, I'll take one or two. And I'm like, no, no, take a bag full of, of, of materials here. And they're so used to being mistreated by the criminal justice system. And, you know, I, firmly believe that, you know, we all need to be accountable for our actions and not everybody's innocent. And uh, certainly some of us have ended up in situations where we made poor choices, but those, those choices shouldn't be, um, you know, prison is not supposed to be uh, continued, continuous punishment. The, the punishment is being, losing your freedom, not losing your dignity and humanity and sense of self. And I think that um, for a lot of our women, we found ways to create hope and support each other through food. Uh, so cooking together, we'd come home after you know going out and working, uh, and instead of going to the mess hall, which is kind of where they um, you have a, a tray, kind of like a cafeteria style, and you go through an area. But I remember holding the tray, and you have to move quickly or else you get yelled at, and oh <laughs> there's people in front of you and behind you, and they're slapping food on the plate. And um, you can't take extra if you're pregnant. You know, you don't get certain things you're supposed to get more of, but, you know, it depends on if they've run out. Um, and the one interesting thing is that they didn't have real coffee. So when you talk about things you miss, and I love coffee, coffee yeah. um, they have chicory root coffee so it's like non-caffeinated oh, right. and it I don't know if it was made poor <laughs> it was horrible it was like oh. dirt water um, so coffee is is something I missed <laughs> totally absolutely so you had to you had the food in your cells but you had to hide the food in your cells because it really wasn't allowed that's right um well yeah. in prison you're allowed to have your cooler and you're more likely to have food that you've bought on commissary but one of the things that um, couldn't happen in the jail so jails and prisons run run differently so jail is anybody who's going to be there for under a year worth of their time um, if you're sentenced to more than a year you go to prison which is in some ways prisons are structured a little bit better oftentimes to support people 
um, because they have a group of people that are going to be there for any one time. A jail is almost just like literally a holding space. A transient. Uh, very yeah. transient. People mm-hmm. may be there for a day or a week or um, they could be there for a year or two if they haven't had their case adjudicated. Um, you know, and I'd like to think that New Hour has been part of making the jail on Long Island more humane. Um, there are officers who are really dedicated to supporting reentry now, and that wasn't that wasn't the case when I was there twenty years ago. That's incredible. Hopefully, uh, towards the end of our conversation, you'll tell us more about you know really what goes on at New Hour. But we're so we're so interested and so pained by hearing your description of the experience of women in, in prison. It's just so intense. I can't imagine the amount of losses that, that everybody goes through. So can you tell us more about, from your perspective personally, and also what you saw in some of the people in your community, um, what kind of losses do people experience? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's almost, I, I think you could liken it to being in a war or being um, in a refugee camp. You know, there's so much loss going on that there's little time to even digest it. And so I realized many years later, and it's probably also from being so young at the time, uh, that I didn't even consider all the losses around me. You know, mothers had their children visiting or not. Um, People's parents died while they were there or their loved ones got sick um, or their children ended up in foster care. You know, all of these things were happening around me, but You know, I was largely, it was just, there was no space where that was spoken about. So, you know, you're just getting through each day in the best way you can. And, you know, you create friendships. Many of the women who I was in prison with now run their own nonprofits. In fact, one woman has a catering company uh, and she hires formerly incarcerated people to to uh, cater. And she's she does wonderful soul food. She cooks. Um, That's incredible. Yeah, there there was certainly a lot of a lot of wasted talent. Um, but yeah. now for many of us, you know, 80 to 90% of women, um, a little bit more than that come home. So people aren't there for their whole life. Um, although some people are, but a, a lot of Serena, how long were you there for? I was there for three years. Mm. You know, so, I, so a, a year first in jail and then is that what you, oh, six, six months, months in, in jail. jail and then, yeah. yeah. You were mentioning, you know, I mean, this whole talk you've been mentioning, but we're talking a lot about the injustices and the kind of degradation that happens in the prison and jail system. And I think, you know, what strikes me about it as I think about this often um, and about the criminal justice system and the police system and in general in this country, but I think we think of people as good and bad in this country and in the world, but I can just speak for this country because this is where I, you know, grew up and where I live. But I think we largely as a society look at good and bad people. and Black and white, if, yeah. Right. Well, yes, I, I think a largely black and white too. I know right. that's not what you meant, but unfortunately. I meant black and white thinking, yeah. right? Yeah. But um, I think we, large, we look at people as good and bad. And if you did something that's, quote, bad, you should be, quote, punished. And, you know, and your rights should be taken away. But, like, what does that, if we really think about it, like, First of all, I don't believe that there are good and bad people. I think there's a very, very small, razor thin amount of people in this world that are, you know, quote, you know, bad. 
Um, I think most people are on a spectrum of having to deal with really different life experiences that put them in different situations. And the way our justice system works, like you did this thing that our bureaucracy, you know, views this way. So you're punished and then your rights should be taken away. We don't ever really stop to think uh, about what the nuances there are of what happened to people that got them there. And then, you know, you're talking about the way people are treated in prison and women are treated in prison. Like if you treat people like garbage and like they're all their, you know, just basic like civility is taken away. What does that lead to? Right. It just like is kind of like the cycle of abuse. Like it doesn't lead to anyone being a better, more productive, more, you know, a changed member. You know what I mean? Of society who's been able to kind of learn and grow from whatever experience. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Like, yeah, I I mean, you're, you're definitely hitting the nail on the head, Zara, because the truth is that most people who commit crimes, um, age out of criminality. Um, you don't necessarily see older people behind bars who have committed crimes unless there's serious mental health issues. And, for um, the majority of, you know, about 40 to 50% of women behind bars have mental health issues. So when you're thinking about how is this serving justice to the victim of a crime, um, I had a woman talk to me once who was the victim of a crime and she said, you know, I want to make sure I feel safe. I want to make sure nothing happens to me, but I'm not so sure that putting this person behind bars for the rest of their life is doing anything for me. Um, and certainly, you know, we feel like restorative justice is about um, m- ensuring that those of us who've, who've harmed others find a way to create space to um, a- accept accountability and, and, and uh, in, in any way they can apologize and, and create, um, you know, peace for those that they've harmed. And you know, what's interesting is the majority of our women behind bars are actually there for nonviolent offenses. So their victim was simply, you know, and not that it's it's any less, but, you know, selling drugs or um, something nonviolent. And one of the things we know is that most women, nine out of 10 who go to prison or jail, have been victims of abuse in their childhood or in adulthood. Um, And so creating that level of degradation and lack of self-esteem in the prisons, then, as you said, creates a cycle where they come home and they feel completely, as I did, unworthy of anything. And it's, you know, it's a journey, right? Like any loss, your loss of self and sense of self And it's taken decades to recover. And, you know, it's something that I still struggle with. It's something that the women who walk into my office talk about all the time. Um, Coming home and being told you're nothing in prison and jail. And, you know, we're not even talking about strip searches and sexual assault and rape. Um, All of the ways in which um, women are um, hurt and harmed by those who are supposed to care for them. And, um, you know, coming home and seeing, again, women trying to get on their feet to take care of their children. Most women are mothers behind bars, three quarters of them. And they're coming home to be the primary caretaker for their child. You know, it's, it's not that the, the other partner or father, um, in many cases, is, is taking on that role. So when you take a mother and incarcerate her, you're really incarcerating a whole family. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, it just always is striking to me, like, isn't the goal here to have a more peaceful society? Isn't the goal to rehabilitate people and to have less violence and like less tragedy in our society? Like, and so I don't understand when you tell, when you talk about things like, you know, different ways that inmates are treated in prisons and jails. I just don't understand that because it seems so at opposition with what you would think the goal would be, which is really rehabilitation. And I understand that for victims and victims' families that there's a a, a really different perspective sometimes and that we have a kind of a primitive inclination towards wanting what we think of as justice, you know, but... um it just seems so at odds with what the ultimate goal would be, which is to have a more kind of just loving and peaceful society. And it's it's a shame to me to hear stuff like that. It's not surprising. It's certainly illuminating, but it's, you know, still terrible and, and very sad because, you know, also something I think we haven't even touched on is that a lot of people are incarcerated, women and men, first of all, for crimes they didn't commit at all. And women particularly, I, I know a little bit about this, obviously you you know much more, but for crimes, uh, you know, of self-defense. Yes, yes. In fact, um, you know, the carceral system, as we call it, it impacts, it negatively impacts uh, corrections officers as well, who have a higher rate of alcoholism, um, spousal abuse. Um, it's a tough environment for anyone to be in. And it's it takes a toll on all people. And one of the things that we know about a lot of our women is that they may have been coerced into a crime um, where they had no choice or felt they had no choice because of an abuser. And that is absolutely, um, you know, in, interestingly, the way in sort of our misogynistic society, women are given harsher sentences. In fact, the rate at which women are becoming incarcerated is growing now. It's growing more and as as the rate for men is dropping, the rate for women is growing. And it's not that they're committing more crimes. It's in terms of, you know, some, you know, judges and the court systems, they judge women more harshly than men because they feel that they are mothers and they should be home and they shouldn't be getting into trouble. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a whole dichotomy about how women in our community are judged. And that kind of goes right into the criminal justice system as well. Um, yeah. Imagine if we had, if we lived in a country where we invested as much money and time and, and consideration to mental health, as we did to the prison industrial complex. I mean, unfortunately, you know, mental health doesn't make money, whereas the prison industrial complex makes money for privatized uh, organizations. But, you know, really, I mean, just imagine if that work and that money and that time was spent on on mental health awareness and ad- advocacy and, you know, instead of just thinking that there's these good and bad people in this world and the bad people should be thrown away and and uh, thrown in jail and t- throw away the key. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, um, imagine. Yeah. Right. Um, so oh, Serena, so tell us more about for you when you finally did get out and what that experience coming back into the, the, the your community was like for you. It must have been so laden with struggles and difficulties. And, and also the second part of that question, how did you end up doing the work that you're doing? So tell us more about yeah. that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a long road. Um, I think back to the person I was when I first came home, and I am so uh, different now in terms of accepting, um, you know, kind of what my life experience has led me to do and be. And I think that in a way, you know, continuing to create space for, you know, we've had let's see, 1,076 women that we've served this year alone in the jail. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so it's incredible to be, and humbling that, you know, I can take something, my loss and my tragedy and my trauma, and I can turn around and now support, you know, other women. And um, not just me, but our wonderful, amazing staff and those of, uh, those people who support New Hour and... Um, we have a leadership program for women coming home. And one of the things that I got involved in fairly quickly was uh, I began to work at the Correctional Association of New York and worked with the Coalition for Women Prisoners. And at the time, we were actually working on a bill that would end the use of shackling during labor. Um, women were shackled to the bed during labor. And we passed that bill in New York State to end the shackling of women. Um, and then we passed another bill more recently that um, allows a judge to say, hey, um, you committed your crime as a result of abuse and you were coerced into your crime because of a, a abuse or, you know, um, you felt you had no choice. So we're going to resentence you to a lesser amount of time. And one of the women I knew who was 16, I was 19, she was 16. Um, all this time that I've been home, she's been incarcerated. And the, uh, since that bill passed and became law, she just came home a couple months ago as a 40-something, you know, 40-year-old woman um, uh, because she had served, I think, 25 years and the judge resentenced her to 12 years. And um, she was a victim of abuse and, and uh, involved in a crime because of it. So, um, you know, I think that one of the things I'd like to think is that the work happening here on Long Island is helping people to understand what you said, Zara, right? Like there is no black and white uh, to these kinds of issues. And there's, there's a huge gray area. And we always say that, you know, we ask our women to be accountable, to do the right thing, to make the right choices. Um, but if somebody does something wrong and makes the wrong choice, we're still there to say, how can we help pull pull back the pieces together and help you now get back on your feet. It's like any part of our lives where there's recovery that's needed. Um, and for women who've been incarcerated, um, it is a long road to understanding how to um, be self-sufficient, how to um, kind of deal with the rejection and stigma that's out there in the general community, the judgment. Um, and also employment and, you know, how do you find a job and explain I've been in prison and um, I've had many a job turn me down. Uh, so, you know, it's really, it's really interesting to think about. And that's, that's, you know, me as a young Latina woman on Long Island versus I'm not somebody who, you know, has even more barriers in terms of um, huge uh, racial prejudice we see on Long Island, you know, where people are just so not welcoming to um, folks who are uh, black people and people of color 
Um, so, you know, it's a, it's, it's why a lot of people end up moving out of suburbia into urban areas because they can blend in and they can be accepted. And, and I'd love to see more of that on Long Island. Absolutely. It's just striking to me, you know, talking about the gray area of how people, uh, end up in prison. And I think, you know, also we live in this kind of, we glorify this like, you know, violent, and I'm not saying I don't watch movies that are about violence and sensationalized crimes and serial killers. And, you know, we live in this time of people are very interested in true crime. And I think we think that like everyone who's in prison is a serial killer. I think we think everyone who's in prison is Ted Bundy, you know, but like realistically, like it's not the case at all. And the unfortunate thing is that a lot of folks who are actually quote unquote dangerous and there's good evidence that they're dangerous and people who are, you know, rapists and harming children and there's like really good evidence against that are often getting, you know, these kind of like lighter like slaps on the wrist for violence against women. You know what I mean? Like rape has a statue, whatever, and not to get too far into it. But then there's like all of these people that, you know, a lot, oftentimes people of color. And as you're saying, women too, who are being kind of just really held to, you know, truth and sentencing and given these like long sentences and not really considered and just had having the book thrown at them. Um, and it's unfortunate. And I think it's worth thinking about for people since our idea of who the prison and jail population is, right. And we have this idea in our head that it's hardened criminals that we remember that when and I'm saying this because I think it's important to remember when we vote right and we just went through like a big election and vote 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 and that's great but I think it's also really important to remember on a local level when we're to really investigate like who are we voting for for judges and DAs and stuff are we a pro prosecution kind of person or pro defense do we want to would we rather see people who are guilty maybe of something go free or innocent people be in jail and i i just think it's important to remember that for people who are listening like this isn't a television show or movie that like the majority of people who are in prisons it's complicated and and nuanced and we should i think we should just remember that i just feel like i yeah. need to say that and and I, and i think that the other piece is that you know most people who become incarcerated are going to be released at some point so to incarcerate them and not give them rehabilitative services is really setting us as a community up for failure. And, you know, now with COVID, one of the uh, men's prisons, one in four people had COVID and, um, you know, officers were not wearing masks. And, you know, when we think about our community, we think prisons are like way over there. And the truth is that people come in and out of prisons every day, whether they're being released or whether they work there. And prisons are a part of our community for the foreseeable future. Um, and you know, years ago, the Quakers created the use of solitary confinement to kind of excommunicate someone who had done something wrong. Well, you're gonna be put by yourself. And that was where the idea of solitary confinement came from. But the truth is, what we know now, many, many years later, is that it doesn't actually help mental health issues or, uh, you know, inappropriate or, or harmful behavior. It exacerbates it. So when we think about prisons in general, we, and like you said, I think that the media and all of our, you know, quote unquote, real TV shows give us this perception that 
prisons keep us safe from people who are harmful. And the truth is that's a very tiny percentage of the folks who are behind bars. And ultimately, I, I think for humanity, most people want to be known as good people and they want to feel that they do good things and that they can be um, transformed and and renewed. And I think, you know, there was a woman, Valerie, who um, she was in prison her whole life. She died in prison of cancer. They didn't tell her about the cancer till it was too late. And um, she committed a horrible crime as a teenager. And, um, you know, she, the woman I knew, was somebody who had changed over the years. And she gave back and she worked in the kitchen cooking. And she was always handing everybody who needed food, extra food on the on the down low, you know, um, bread or cheese or whatever you needed. And, you know, that was a woman who she had found a way to be useful and to give back to others behind bars. And unfortunately, she never had the opportunity to be free. Um, she wasn't granted clemency, even though there was a, a petition happening for her and she died before she could come home and she was a victim of abuse as a child and so the story continues right like with how women in general in our community are certainly um, underserved and subjugated in many ways and it happens the same in prisons and jails yeah hmm. so what, what would you say was the the guiding light for you? I mean, what was the thing that most supported you both in jail and, and coming out and rehabilitating and coming back into society as such an incredible advocate? What sustained you? Well, I, I feel like I was lucky enough to have a sisterhood of women behind bars who became my best friends. And they were all there for... Um, issues where, you know, they had been involved in things that, you know, there was no intention to be harmful, and yet they were kind of pulled into things where they didn't realize they had choices they could make um, to get themselves free and out of those situations that were dangerous. And so we became close friends, and, you know, it was, what are we cooking tonight? You know, what are we cooking? What, what meal are we making um, tonight together? And, um yeah, I, th- I think the friendships that I was able to create there um, su- sustained me and sustained them and many of the volunteers. There was a volunteer who did yoga and she would come in once a week and, you know, she, she never asked, why are you here? What have you done? It was just you're a person and I'm going to teach you a yoga class and you're going to learn meditation and this is a safe space to do that in. Um, Sister Elaine Roulette is an a, an incredible icon who created the children's center and parenting center, bringing children to visit their parents. And um, she was there in the prison, really providing support and humanity, um, opportunities to send Christmas gifts homes to your family or children. Um, She created for me and so many of the women, a space where we could be useful and could be seen as people and that that was tremendous. Right. And then when you were on, when you got out, what sustained you then when you look back now? What do you think? You know, I think that um, I think reentry is harder than prison uh, there. You, you lose your supports that you've created uh, because they're saying in prison, your reality is now outside of prison and any any way that you operated that kept you in a safe space 
is gone. So or lost. Yeah. Yeah. So you you I think most people will say reentry is one of the hardest times um, in terms of adjusting. I think that. Reentry is really challenging, and I think that most people will say that's the loneliest. It is one of the loneliest times um, where you're really feeling alone. It's like any like a somebody returning from war. Nobody can identify with what you've gone through, and in a way, that is why I was so grateful to create New Hour. And um, when Patty and George Krause, who live on the East End in Southampton, were volunteering in the jail and realized there was nothing for women, and you know, we we were put in touch by Sister Tisa, another nun. There's sort of a history of nuns doing good work that always seems to come and and help me. Mm, that's um, awesome. And so. We connected, and it's deeply satisfying that now women can return home. We had a woman call us yesterday. She's coming home from prison today. She's being released from the facility with a bus ticket and a train ticket. And um, she's called us collect, and we're going to you know, have her come here and pick out clothing and do a reentry assessment and, and help her because there is no safe space for women who are coming home back to Long Island anyway. And so it feels really gratifying to be able to have this space. I wish I had this space when I came home. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's incredible that you've done that for other people. And, you know, it's interesting because it just really, I think, it speaks to anyone who's experienced grief, trauma, and loss in any way. You could use the the metaphor of reentry in a lot of ways. I think, you know, someone who experiences a loss of a loved one, um, there is a feeling of reentry. And you're like, you know, we were. I was just reading an article um, that a future person who's going to be a guest on the show wrote, and she was talking just about a moment when she was kind of first felt like she had the wherewithal to leave the house and go to a public event. And, you know, that kind of reminds me of reentering, like refinding your footing and like, you know, whether it's very literal, like refinding an actual place to live and be, or whether it's like finding just this emotional fortitude after the loss of like a child or something. And how can you look at anything again that could potentially be triggering. But I think like we are societally not very supportive of re I mean, certainly not of reentry from people from the prison system at all and largely not super supportive of people with reentry from any kind of trauma. Absolutely. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's something that we could all really benefit from paying attention to how to help our friends and neighbors reenter in practical ways, like people returning from jail and in, in emotional ways too, because, you know, that is a really hard thing for people. And it's hard for people, I think, to ask to know what they need. You know, I think when what you're talking about with reentering from the prison system is like, there's some practical things, you know, you need a home and shelter and money and food and a job. And, but I think it's hard to know what you need, and I think it's an important thing we could all kind of think about. Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, the level of PTSD, which now they're also, um, you know, calling around um, the overwhelming majority of people who return home have, you know, you smell something, you hear something, you hear keys jingling and you think of the shakedown. Um, you smell a certain soap and it smells like soap that was used when you were strip searched. Um, so there's there's so much trauma and I think you said something really important, Zara, which is you have to, it's hard to know what you need when you come home from incarceration. And 
it takes a lot of introspection and support and counseling to understand how to even ask for what you need. And um, I think that is the hardest part because, you know, it's very easy to fill um, food and clothing and, and housing is more challenging, um, which is why we're fundraising for a home for women and um, on our way there to building a house for women. Because, you know, one of the things that we've noticed is that women need time and men um, need space to breathe and be. And when, you've, when you're recovering from that kind of transition and loss and trauma, um, there, there isn't enough time. You're going to a shelter or to a friend's couch or um, you know, you're trying to move so quickly to make up for lost exactly. time that you're not given the space to say, what do I need? to get on my feet and what are the things I need to make sure I ensure my mental health is good and my self-care is on, on point. Um, and that doesn't, I mean, I came home, I didn't have any children. I can't imagine coming home and having to immediately take on taking care of children or worrying about it. The, hit the road is the minute you get home. Exactly. Right. But t- time to, you know, it reminds me as you were talking about when I talk about the tasks of grief and what we do after we've had a loss. And part of that is like, who am I? You know, what is my new meaning? How do I resolve some of the unresolved issues and some of the feelings that I bring with me and the trauma that I bring with me? Um, so it sounds so similar, as Zara was saying, to the to the grieving process. Because yeah. as you say, you, you so adapt when you're there, and then there's another loss on top of all the other losses, and then you're faced with so many challenges of how to re- re-enter. It's, it's yeah. really profound. Your sense of identity is deeply challenged you know, you're identifying as now somebody who is a prisoner and has no worth according to the system. And then you're told to come home and act worthy and get a job and and be important and make a difference and get on your feet. So, you know, the, you know, who are you as somebody who's come home? And I, I like to say to all of our women who come through the door here, you know, welcome home, welcome to the, you know, the first day of the rest of your life. You know, this space is a space where it's okay to say I've been in prison or jail and I have a great future ahead of me. Um, So really important. So I want to ask you a question. I'm sure people ask you this periodically, you know, how do you do this work? Are there ways that you are triggered? But what is... What is it that this work, how does it affect you in your, in your being, yeah, in your soul? It, it's, it's interesting because I've had people say to me, you know, after everything you've been through, why in the world would you want to do this every day? Would you want to put that behind you and move on? And the truth is, when I first came home from prison, I thought I would do that. And um, I wasn't being true to myself. And it was kind of hiding the elephant in the room. And it, it didn't serve any purpose other than me having to do a lot of backpedaling and get out of some poor decisions that I made for my personal life. And now it feels like I'm more at home with women who've been incarcerated than I am with my neighbors who don't understand why black lives matter. You know, right. I mean, this is, this is absolutely at the crux of how the criminal justice system was created because of racism and the over-incarceration of people of color. And for me, I feel like being in this space, like all of us, right? When you're in a space with somebody who identifies with your issues, you feel sustained and heard and seen. And that's um, so val- So really, I, I get a whole lot more out of this than, than I give. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm one, you are amazing. You, are you, you amazing. remind me the metamorphosis that you went through. Yeah. You're just a, a beautiful butterfly. Incredible. <laughs> you really are. I'm curious Giant. about, you know, bringing it back to food a little bit. Um, I'm curious about if there were any foods in particular that when you, A, that maybe you looked forward to, although it sounds like you guys really made such a beautiful food experience, (laughs) um, in prison, but I'm wondering if there's any kind of like food memories or things that you like really looked forward to when you would get out. And then when you got out, did, did it meet that expectation? And what was your kind of relationship with food like after prison? Yeah, I mean, we didn't have an oven, so there were certain foods that you just can't cook without an oven. Yeah. Um, and so you were never going to have like a huge turkey or a roast or anything like that. Um, for me, it's funny because I think we enjoyed food more in prison than we do than I do now because it was so. Um, there was nothing else and nothing else that brought joy. And there was also this sense of like, we're so lucky to even have food because there were women who never had any food sent to them and didn't have anybody to send food. And, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's interesting to think about, uh, the food that I cooked there. I still cook here, right? Like I still make my sauce and my rice and my pasta and my, um, Spanish rice. And, uh, you know, I think that, um, it's to me, it's interesting because I love the fact that I can cook more than one dish, (laughs) which is something you couldn't do there. So (laughs) you have four burners, right? Right. You, and then we didn't have, so we had to take turns. You have to sign up to share the burners and to get a slot and to, and you can only cook for so long. So there was all kinds of constraints in terms of, you know, when we can cook and how we could do it. Um, but you know, it's interesting because I think that the meal I missed the most was when we used to make the shrimp at ceviche with, with the red onions, because so awesome. it, it tasted so good there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's incredible. You're describing that the, when we are grateful for something and when we're, pre- when something feels precious and the worth of it, mm. you know, we so often, certainly with food, you know, we take it for granted a lot of the times. And even when we enjoy making it, we, we take for granted that we have it totally. and that we can cook anything and we go to the store and get anything and do anything. So it, you really bring up such an important aspect of food and grief, which is the, um, the essence of appreciation. And, and value and uh, gratefulness. So what a beautiful story that is. The food aspect of this. We never dreamt that this was going to really come up in this way. It's yeah. it's really been it's, very It's incredible. It's inspiring. incredible. Um, so Serena, at the kind of as we wind down with each guest, we always ask the same question, which is if you could have given yourself a piece of advice at the beginning of this, pro- you know, experience for you at the beginning of your grieving process and your trauma, knowing what you know now and having experienced what you've experienced, what would that advice be? Um, I think that advice would be something that I just recently heard. Uh, There's a yoga teacher, Tao, who's 97 and been doing yoga for a really, really long time. And um, she said, you know, always, always hope for the future because uh, there's always potential to move beyond what your current circumstances are. And, you know, I kind of live by the mantra that this too shall pass, which is really important when you're grieving and going through a loss and kind of trying to cope with each day, knowing that there's an end in sight. I mean, for me, there was an end in sight. 
um, in terms of incarceration. But there are many women who will be put to death behind bars in the U.S., who will spend their whole life in prison, who will die in prison even though they weren't sentenced to death because um, they're not eligible for parole. So it is really, um, really about how do you live each day giving to others and to yourself in the best way you can. Um, and, and I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's... I think I would say to myself way back then uh, that um, there's going to be capacity to support and give and help others. And that's really what, what brings me joy in life. Um, just like getting together and cooking with my friends and family and just like we cook together in the, in the prisons, it's um, community, right? And how we connect to each other. Totally. That's beautiful. And, you know, we would love to, if you have some things to mention about how we can, how people can support New Hour, how people, if you're raising funds for a new home, if there's anything else that you kind of want to just let our listeners know about your views about the prison system in general, or if there's ways that they can educate themselves, if there's any last things you kind of want to say, how we can help support the causes that you're passionate about, that would be great. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I would love, uh, first and foremost, anybody who's listening to make a call to your state senator or your assembly member or the governor, Governor Cuomo, and say, you know, using solitary confinement is torture and please end it. Um, And it's something that could be done. It could be mandated and it hasn't yet. So as someone who survived what I did, it's really would mean so much to me personally to know people are caring about this issue and making those phone calls. Um, you said it before, Zara, you know, asking elected officials and lawmakers, what do they think about the prison system? Because they don't even get that question half the time. They get the questions about taxes and school districts and, uh, you know, but not this question about the carceral system. And so there's that. Um, and then um, there's a great group working on that called uh, Halt Solitary. And uh, I can get you their info. And then there's another group working to ensure that women and men who are over 55 get a chance to see the parole board um, the way Valerie, my friend, never did. And that group is Release Aging People in Prison, RAP. And they're doing great work, uh, again, asking lawmakers to change law to say, hey, you know, no matter what crime you committed, maybe you've transformed Maybe you can prove that you have changed in these years and deserve a chance to come home. Um, And for New Hour, uh, housing is such a huge issue on Long Island for women coming home. And they're living in shelters that are expensive and they, you know, their social services goes right to that shelter. And there's literally no wraparound support. There's no yoga class. There's no counselor. There's no, hey, there, you know, AA meeting. Um, and so for us, we're raising money to build that house for women. Um, we need to raise 600000 which is a huge number, but we've already raised about 115000 Amazing. And so we're on our way. So any donations that anyone makes, whether it's $5 or $25, it's going to be doubled by our major donors who are our founders, Patty Incredible. and George Krause. So if you donate 10 bucks, it's 20 bucks. Wow, so that's great. We're really... and, they can, and people can donate via your web, like what's the best way to actually go ahead and find where to donate? Yes, so it's on our Facebook, our Instagram, our Twitter, and also on our website, which is www.newhourli.org. 
and backslash donate, or you can just go to the main homepage and you can click on donate. And all donations are tax deductible because we're a nonprofit, but um, we're looking to really build that house in the next year and house women and, and children and moms. So That's um, amazing. Any, any donations are really, really appreciated. Great. We'll post all that information too on our, on our Instagram. So you guys can, can get that. And I hope that every, I hope that after listening to this, if people haven't already do more to educate themselves about, you know, the prison industrial complex and the fact that, you know, people's desire to have safer communities is not supported by the same people who are running private prisons. That's not their goal is not to make the community safe. You know what I mean? Like that's, it's, uh, they're in in conflict with each other the goals i think of community and the goals of people who are running private prisons and such and so i i hope that this episode and listening to your story encourages folks out there to just do more research about the carceral system and some of the extreme injustices that happen to and this is the key point i think to human beings to human beings who I think we you toss around a lot, people don't change. I completely disagree. And especially hearing your story and what your viewpoints are, people do change always. You know, it's, it's actually quite rare that people don't change. I think that's so true. I think that I'm not the person I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And I think that, um, you know, the prison industrial complex is a huge money-making industry. And there's lots of people who make a lot of money off of it. In fact, to incarcerate somebody for the year is more than a college tuition in many cases. So um, it's, it's definitely something that would save us a lot of money if we thought about other ways as taxpayers to spend that money in terms of alternative to incarceration programs and rehabilitative programs and drug treatment programs versus just putting people into prisons um, especially the 80% who are substance abuse, have substance abuse disorder. So, you know, you're, you know, I think that um, I'm hopeful that the 33,000 people in New York State who are in prison right now, that that number will keep shrinking yeah. um, and that we'll be able to see a smaller percentage of our Americans behind bars. Yeah, absolutely. Serena, thank you so much. I feel that you have educated us, you've sensitized us, you've um, just taught us all so much about a part of our culture that we, most of us, know little about. And you're a brave and strong and courageous and beautiful human being. We thank you so much. Julian, yeah. Oh, no, go ahead, Serena. I I appreciate both of you taking the time. And I love your podcast, love listening to it and hearing the stories of other other folks on it. And um, I feel really honored to be here. So thank you for having me. Thanks. It's a huge honor to have you. And it's a really, you know, everybody that comes on the show is vulnerable. And it's a huge gift to us to have them share and be vulnerable. And I mean, especially in this situation, because, you know, I know it's a big, it's a big part of your life is sharing your story and you've made it your life's work to do this, this type of work. Um, But just to come on and really talk candidly about it is important. And I think that it's invaluable for people who are listening and people who aren't listening alike. So pass it on to just remember, again, I can't really from my point of view, which I have nowhere near the knowledge or intimate, intimate knowledge that you do of, of this situation. But um, just please continue to remember people in the way that you vote and what you decide to spend your time advocating for that, you know, the large part, 
that the majority of people who are incarcerated are you know nonviolent offenders are and every single one of them every 100% of people in jail are people and you know we really need to stop looking at our society and the people who do commit you know crimes i guess whatever as people we need to cast away to these shadowy faraway places and not worry about it's not it's not good for anyone really it's not good for anyone um so thank you for coming on and being vulnerable and taking the time to talk about it. It's such an important thing. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Rena. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.